Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey there, folks. Just wanted to jump on mic before we start the show proper and give a shout out to our sponsor on this episode. And it is our friends over at the Criterion Collection. Uh, you probably know what the Criterion Collection is and the awesome Blu-rays and DVDs that they put out uh, on their label every month. New new releases come out. Um, they're also known for their streaming catalog on Filmstruck as well, if streaming is your jam. But I'm here to specifically shout out a Blu-ray release that has just come out recently from Criterion. And it is uh, Andre Tarkovsky's uh, film Andre Rublev, um, a film that had already gotten a DVD release. Uh, much uh, a long time ago on the Criterion, and this one comes with the uh, the original uh, length of a 200-minute cut and then also a preferred by Tarkovsky 183-minute cut. So uh, you get two versions on this Blu-ray, and it's a film I can't wait to dive into when I'm ready to get my Tarkovsky mood on. So we thank Criterion for doing great work and supporting this show, and now on to the podcast. I've no Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Adjust Your Tracking is part of the Playlist Podcast Network. You can find uh, all of our shows and our other shows uh, on the network at theplaylist.net or just look up the Playlist Podcast Network on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, house cleaning's out of the way. Uh, what, are we, what are we diving into today, Joe? Oh, just some more state of the industry. <laughs> it never ends. <laughs> There's a there's two movie there's a f- feature film um, and a series uh, that was recently put on Netflix both of which were put on Netflix and so these are two efforts by two filmmakers that we've you know championed in the past got uh, Maniac the new ten part mini series by Kerry Fukunaga and uh, the new Jeremy Sonier movie Hold the Dark and they're both, you know, they they both were filmmakers who had films that played theatrically. And um, Kerry Fukunaga has transitioned into, you know, like doing television series like True Detective, which, you know, has some very heavy cinematic feel, like a, a very heavy cinematic feel to it, mm-hmm. but still is like tailored for television. And so it's like they're two very signature, distinct filmmakers who are at that weird crossroad of where things go, like where, you know, do, do ideas get fleshed out now as like installments in television series form? Do you tailor films to be shown on streaming services? Like which, you know, Jeremy Sonia still has made an incredibly epic, intense, immersive cinematic experience that is most likely going to be, you know, seen primarily at home for people, you know, on Netflix, though it is playing theatrically. Um, 
in a few places. Yeah. But it's a, it's just like a, a there are two filmmakers that are at a crossroad with where the industry is at. And um, this last weekend uh, was the start of Beyond Fest here, which is a genre festival in Los Angeles that's been going for six years strong. I've been going since the beginning, not bragging. Um, <laughs> and was it last year that they did like the the kind of uh, they did like an announcement on their website? It was either last year or the year the year before where they were just talking about uh, you know like how like how much they appreciate their fans coming to the theater. And um, encouraging them to continue to, you know, visit theaters, specifically art house theaters, small theaters, repertory theaters to keep the like the culture alive, because like there's no guarantee that it's always going to be around. And once they're gone, they're gone for good. So as overly dramatic as that might feel, you know, like there is a certain state of like, you know, there, nobody knows where things are headed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, during the time of something like blockbuster video where it's ubiquity sort of guaranteed its permanence, like those all went away except for one in Bend, Oregon. <laughs> never, never been. But um, so theatrical experience, we've talked about that for several years now being endangered. It's, it it comes up. Yeah, yeah. Once in a while. <laughs> um comes and goes our discussion of it, you know, and it's, it's clear that it's like, it's not budging as of right now, but like things are changing. And, uh, they had a Cronenberg retrospective that started this, uh, it's bleeding into, I think today, maybe tomorrow is like the last day of the retrospective portion of beyond fest, Mm -hmm. but at the Q and a for dead ringers, uh, David Cronenberg said that, you know, he's like, he was basically kind of, kind of trying to like temper a hysteria around people, you know, like worrying about movie theaters going away and he, he embraces streaming technology. Eh, Good for you. You know, like, but he was just like, you know, seeing a movie in a theater with people in the dark and on a giant screen, it's, you know, that's, that's one way to do it, but it's not the only way. And I, for the sake of the people around me, I muttered, you motherfucker, you know, cause (laughs) You know, not meaning it really, but like mm-hmm. it is one perspective. Sure. It's not, you know, that's one way to experience a movie in the theater with people in a community and, you know, on a large screen the way it was intended. Eh, who knows? But, um, <laughs> you know, like there there are other ways to experience things. And we're getting into that, you know, in this day and age where like you can watch a movie on your phone as much as David Lynch. The other David might hate it. Um <laughs> You can watch it on your watch, as David Cronenberg joked about. Um, so, yeah, like to be at a festival and have him kind of like make a contra- a contrarian point at a festival that sort of espouses the importance of theaters and its own community. It was just sort of like it was a weird kind of interface to have, which is like, well, he's not wrong, but also he's whatever... <laughs> whatever the opposite of preaching to the converted is preaching <laughs> to the unconverted. Like that's what it was. And that's why I muttered, you motherfucker, how dare you? <laughs> Cause it was just like, you're speaking to a bunch of people who like love this time of year and all coming together and sort of celebrating your work, which was like, it's sophistication was, I think because of how it was going to be presented. Like there's an importance to the sort of like regalness of being not, 
not mentioning the chain, but like, you know, of being in a theater, of being in like a sort of place that, you know, like grand, you know, and like tailoring an art like for that sense of presentation, I think has an effect. And like the more things are sort of geared towards being experienced in like quick tidbit consumption, I think the art starts to diminish a little bit. doesn't always have to, but like, I think it does have an effect on it. Eventually how it's consumed eventually has an effect on how the art is produced. Mm. And mm, say, say word. So, <laughs> so like, so this is interesting to me because like we have two filmmakers, you know, having released content, sorry if that's an ugly word to, you know, Netflix primarily, and they were filmmakers whose movies we've seen in the theater um, really liked. And like Jeremy Sonier's last effort, uh, Green Room, was like it was like like a unique, singular, nightmarishly immersive cinematic experience. Yes. And it like it can be just as powerful at home on your laptop or on your on David Cronenberg's watch. But like. <laughs> I don't know. Did that movie end up doing well? It did okay. You know, it wasn't like, I thought it was always, I think we both thought it was going to be one of those sort of whore breakout at the box office. And I think right. it, it landed between like two and three million, which is solid for a little movie. But I, de- I remember thinking it was going to do much better. But it was it did, most likely, most likely cost like five or some somewhere around there. Yeah, it was a low, it was made uh, very responsibly according to Saulnier. Um, uh, so yeah, like, so yeah, like with promotion and everything, like they probably didn't, they probably lost a little money on it. Hmm. So that's not, so for, to take less risk, you jump onto like a, a streaming site like Netflix, who is able to sort of front you enough money to make the, the same level of movie you want to make, you know, with the same level of sophistication, but you're just not going to get this sort of push for it to be seen the way he may have originally intended, which I don't know how much of a purist he is in terms of like making movies for the the cinema, but like he's talked a little bit on Twitter uh, this week about it actually. So yeah, I'd be, well, I'd, because Netflix still is making some, like they're making enough of an effort to put it out in some cities theatrically. And if people respond the way people have been responding with like Mandy's rollout, you right. know, yeah, a movie we championed on a few episodes ago, but like uh, its theatrical rollout has been gradual, driven primarily by word of mouth, and like it's a it's a success in that sense, you know that like mm-hmm. it just keeps getting bigger and bigger, and like a lot of distribution companies will like have a hunch, like a movie like Sorry to Bother You, where they're mm-hmm. like, we're gonna open it in five theaters. This movie's gonna be bigger than that, though, so we're gonna roll it out to like you know in the impending weeks after that. But like Mandy, there was no guarantee. So they opened it. They scheduled like it's requisite run. And if it didn't do well, they, they would just be done. But like it was and, selling out shows and they put it on VOD the same day. That's a big, important note there for that one. Yeah. So for a movie to be available for people to conveniently stream, mm-hmm. um, but instead opting to go see it in the theater, which is where that movie belongs. It belongs. It's enormity belongs like in, in the theater. So like for people to do that, make the effort to sell out shows to the point of them extending runs, getting it in like bigger theaters. 
Like that's kind of a big deal for a movie on that scale. Absolutely. And so it's also like not it's it's not a foregone conclusion anymore that like uh, it's all it's all written on the wall. It's all doomed. It's all fucked. Forget it. Like there are still exceptions. Right. Your theater you work for had a great summer, you know, for like for being a independent cinema like it did great. So it's just like theaters aren't dead, but their their future isn't certain either, you know, so either way, whether it's like optimistic or pessimistic. And so, yeah, hold the dark, which you want to talk about that first? I I mean, I think that's the one we're going to find the most to dive into. I I think we're going to end up complaining more about Maniac, but for good reason. But uh, yeah, let's let's dive in. Let's do some Saulnier. Okay. Um, So he was it seemed like he was juggling projects after Green Room. Like he was originally slated to direct some of the new season of True Detective which he opted out of. He directed he so he still finished I think the first two episodes but he was contracted to do at least two more and he walked away about halfway done, halfway through. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, and he's still credited on those first two as I understand. So. So that's part of our overlap for this episode, the two directors that we're talking about, but primarily uh Kerry Fukunaga was the director of the original season of True Detective, which like they had no guarantee of what the show was going to be could have been similar to maniac a mini series just a one-off but it's intense popularity prompted them to do a second season which it's questionable whether they should have um i rode for that second season i was like what it's the same it's the same stuff i mean it's a little dumber but you know like it's it's what you liked about the first oh never mind forget it i got to the last episode let me uh let me rein it back in and not (laughs) argue for this season anymore wow wow this is dumb holy shit (laughs) it was a valiant effort yeah i tried i tried to be the contrarian the lonely contrarian but uh so with this with hold the dark um Jeremy Saunier is, uh, you know, working with his his frequent collaborator, Macon Blair, who wrote the adaptation of this, which is based on a, a novel. And uh, there's there's just some like it's got a similar kind of uh, haunted mm-hmm. um, existential desolation to it. Um, you know, that like he's he's visited in his films, Blue Ruin, Green Room. And there's like a there's a a brutality sort of looming in every corner of this haunted, empty landscape. This one being set in Alaska, which Eric, have you ever been to Alaska? I have not. I know some folks that are from there and uh, I know I'd love it. Uh, it. It's certainly scenic in a way that I would appreciate. Yeah. I went in the summer one year and oh, even man. in the summer, which it's like, you know, daylight, however 18 hours a day or something like that something insane everything is engineered to make you insane i think in right. <laughs> so in, in in this film it's set in the winter time where it's like primarily dark most of the time and uh but just that sense of uh a surrounding nature that could kill you at any second mm. haunts the people that i think live there and you there was just like a far away look in so many people's eyes that live there and i visited juno which is like i think a pretty pretty harmless place not compared to the location and hold the dark which right, seems right. pretty far flung pretty remote yeah yeah 
And like there's there's a the film opens with a mother losing her child to like what is a wolf attack. And then she calls upon a writer who is in a, you know, a similar state of despair who has written about wolves. And like he she enlists him to come help her try to track down the wolves that potentially captured and ate her son. Um, Mm -hmm. There's no nice way to say it. It's a very strange strange opening. opening. Yeah. yeah. Like just just her whole idea. What like you hire this author, like, you know, that alone is like almost a clue to the movie of like something's off, but you kind of go with it in the beginning. There's something Selene is really good at of like his films have like, like the existential dread you said, but there's like over like an inevitability. They're like, okay, sure. But like you think about it and you're like, why would, why, why is this the guy that they wanted? You know, but it doesn't have to make sense because there's obviously a lot more going on uh, right. there, uh, which emerges as the movie goes on. There's a quiet focus to the movies. that yeah. gives it a gravity that like makes you kind of go with it. And there's, there's something like a little foredoomed about many of the characters that people as movies that you're just like, Oh, they, they're sort of just following the trajectory of their own demise. And yeah. so like that, that's also why you don't question it. <laughs> and there's an inevitability to it all. Yeah. 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 And like, there's something, uh, the, the writer that she enlists, um, which the mother is played by Riley Keogh. Is that how you say her name? I believe so. Yeah. And then Jeffrey Wright is the author. Who's great. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and there's there's something kind of like uh, distant and poetic about the dialogue that reminded me of Cormac McCarthy a lot, and mm-hmm. the, just the sort of uh, gloomy landscape reminded me of it, the sort of empty, desolate Western feel of it. Um, you know, it's just something that like has been looming over movies since uh, No Country for Old Men in 2007, which was based on his book and. Uh, it's hard not to feel a connection there as well to the, the, cause there's a whole other sort of B story going on at first in the movie with, uh, Riley Keogh's uh, husband, Alexander Skarsgård, uh, who's in Iraq at that time. And he becomes, I, don't, I hesitate how much I want to detail, but like he becomes a sort of Anton Chigurh like force of just murder and mayhem, right? Like, so yeah. I also noticed a lot of connections too. I did feel a very strong Cormac McCarthy, but uh, a continuation of Saunier's, I think, affection for the Coen brothers because Blue Ruin, I feel like when we talked about that, that has elements of a Coen brothers movie. It's just that he finds a different tone to sort of like run it run to tell that story. And um, yeah, I I noticed it more here as much as hold the dark is sort of an expansion and an ambitious sort of uh, step up for him. There are, there are these little elements that still remind you of that filmmaker that made those specific, those two small movies, blue ruin and green room. Yeah. There. Yeah. So like it, it manages to have this kind of like poetic reflective quality that like the, the way that no country for old men had these like, you know, sequences where people were just musing about the sort of, you know, inevitable collapse of society, you know, and this was, I think that movie was set in the 1980s and they're just like, you have Tommy Lee Jones, like haunted reflections on just like where everything's headed and then mixed with what is like an incredibly capable thriller. You know, there are these like sequences and set pieces that are just like, 
that function as like, you know, some of the most like white knuckle exhilarating, you know, thriller sequences. Yeah. And uh, hold the dark is similar to where it's like, there are these weird poetic musings and then it'll just plunge into this kind of like nightmare suspense sequence. And so like, it's just that, that sort of woozy um, in between that, like I think makes for a really unique experience. And um, as much as like, it, it's probably more, a little more similar to blue ruin and in, in its, in its pacing than yeah. it is green room, which once green room starts, it's just like, it's so like all in like for the jugular that like there's, there's no stopping the momentum of it. Whereas like, this one's paced a little more like patiently yeah, and like allows you room to kind of reflect, which is not to say that when the sequences ramp up, which there are a handful of them, it doesn't get incredibly harrowing and like, you know, frightening. Um, it's, it's again, it's, it's really cool to see him step up everything. Uh, narratively, this movie goes to places that I think the simplistic stories he was telling in green room and blue ruin, just it 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 doesn't have time for in those movies. This one, this one, without being a twisty story, it several times it go it, throughout the movie. I was constantly wondering. I guess the big difference is that I was wondering where is this going in a good way. It was like that was the carrot and the stick that just kept me. That was the the suspense and the tension that like took me through the entire thing. Blue Ruin and Green Room are much more, especially Green Room, right? Like once the the sort of stakes are set up very early on, it's just a run up to the end of the nightmare. You know, like you're either going to get it out or you're dead. And yeah. that's great. Those movies work, especially Green Room, so great in their simplicity. Um, what I'm most impressed by, especially like as I've thought about Hold the Dark after seeing it a couple days ago, is just like, I'm not sure I fully understand it. And in a good way. There are movies that like, I'm like, what was that all about? And it doesn't work. This was the opposite. This is, this is wanting me to go back and revisit it. There are things I straight up missed about hold the dark that, uh, as I read about it, I was like, huh, that was supposed to be what they were conveying. And I, uh, actually kind of like that. It's, it's, um, it's akin to watching like uh, I don't want people to think that Hold the Dark is like a David Lynch movie, but akin to watching something like his, and you're, it might not register, but you know you've seen something that's effective at least. Mm-hmm. And it makes you want to go back and and see more. Often, I love those films, especially if I watch them again and again. I start to see that movies like this tend to have more going on, where like they reward if you if you want to go through that. Uh, that extreme existential dread that is just like all over this movie. But um, it does have uh, a real, like an odd narrative. It takes strange turns. I'd never knew where it was going. And I, that felt new for Solnia. That felt like an expansion on what he's trying to build as a filmmaker. Yeah. And, and it's interesting to have, you know, a sense of like having accomplished something, some new terrain that is as kind of cinematic as his previous efforts, like it sort of, it hits the notes that you've appreciated in his previous films and then sort of ventures into new terrain, but then feeling like it's understandable why this didn't get a theater. Like, you know, Mm, it was, I think it was always for Netflix. It didn't get picked up by Netflix after it was already made. No, exactly. Yep. um, But seeing that like, ah, this wouldn't really fit. 
like in the movie theaters anymore. And there being something a little bit sad about that, but then not knowing what to do as an alternative. Cause it's like, it still got made and it got made on the scale that you would want it to get made on. Like it's sequences that are impressive are like really impressive and it's photography, which some of it is just stunning, you know, landscape photography, you know, like a, of a plane hovering over the sort of like, you know, wide massive expansiveness of Alaska. Yeah. It's like, it's stunning. It's beautiful. And like, you know, to have the funding to be able to do that and then, you know, having it be on a platform that's most likely much smaller than what is typically a, a theatrical release is like, it's, it's a weird kind of limbo to be in. Cause you're like, it gets still, it got made on the scale with the sophistication that you would want it to. It's just not in the place that we're used to sort of relishing that sophistication. Sony has been talking about the fact uh, on Twitter. A lot of people are asking him questions since the movie came out this weekend and uh, answering questions about how he chose to film the movie. And he he basically said that um, there was one I found really interesting where his response was all that talk about what's what's a film and what's not a film, basically like if it goes to a theater or not, it's all noise to him. And to him, he shot Hold the Dark exactly the same way he would have. Yeah. No matter what. And it does show to, to what you're saying, right? Like the movie looks like a big screen movie. There are these wide, expansive vistas. Like very early on, Jeffrey Wright, in his mission, you know, goes out into the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, and there are shots that I was like, oh my God, it reminded me of some of those some of the stunning imagery you see in like the Revenant, you know, where really just taking in a brutal, harsh, cold landscape and just appreciating that visual. Um, I could still appreciate it on my TV, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, I'm glad, I guess it's, it's, it's a, it's twofold. I mean, I, I want to, I don't think I'll get to see this. I don't think this is going to show anywhere in Portland in a theater, uh, as seems to be the deal with these Netflix movies. Um, but I mean, I'm glad the movie got made the way he wanted to, you know, the, like the version he wanted to make is what he made. So, you know, it, it is a, it's a complicated thing. Is David Cronenberg wrong? No. I mean, like we, it, if some people can only see these movies that way, um, that's not a negative thing because this film did get made. I, I still tend to lean that way. But um, I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't think like every 10 minutes, I was like, fuck, I wish I was watching this in a cinema right now. It would just be, it'd be great. And I'd love for Netflix, you know, if something like Mandy was able to prove that you can put something out on VOD, but people will show up for good reason for a certain kind of experience that demands the big screen, they will do it. They'll, they'll spend a little more money, right? They'll get off their ass and they'll go to a theater. Um, uh, the only god damn it i saw a screener link of it and i immediately bought a 15 dollar ticket to see it in the theater like, That's amazing. I, was like I have to see this like in the way it was intended and shot you know yeah and you're yeah. I, i'm super jealous that that you that that's an option you know that's and that's great the only other movie i can think of that got um any sort of traction in a theater that was basically on vod right away was snowpiercer, snowpiercer yeah, yeah. yeah i thought about that one yeah and um I would say Snowpiercer and Mandy both have uh, maybe more purely um, and is, are more of a ride in some ways, like an entertainment yeah. sort of roller coaster in some ways compared to Hold the Dark. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I get what you're saying, too. Like the movie is sticks to its guns and doesn't necessarily want to be a thrill ride yet. I mean, it is thrilling. And there are moments uh, beyond just the the photography 
where God, it would be like imagine in a theater to see there. So okay, there's a section in Hold the Dark where it's a massive shootout. It's something mm-hmm. on a scale that Saulnier has not done up until this yeah. point he's always yeah, yeah. managed to yeah he's always managed to sort of confine a small group of characters so he could kind of you know keep everything to a modest scale mm-hmm. he gets to really open it up in this movie and that gunfight is just as brutal as anything he's ever accomplished his the way he handles violence is so effective because he doesn't make it fun but yet there's still a thrilling like choreography to it and then also yeah. he reminds you uh he does remind you very, he's really good at this. He reminds you what bullets do to people and it's horrible. It's really well, brutal. Um, yeah. There's, there's like, it's not fun or funny the way, like kind of like uh, sense deadening extreme violence has become in a lot of movies. There's a, vi- but it's, there's the visceral jolt that it's violence depicted in a way that really is unlike it's ever been depicted before. Like, mm-hmm. There's a scene early on where, you know, uh, during the combat sequence where you see a character get shot in the neck oh, yeah. and it's like Good. pumping blood. And it was just like clearly a practical effect and how they made it look as realistic as they did seemingly in a in one take. Yeah. Where it's just like he gets nicked and it just like pops his neck open. You're watching it just gush blood. And it's horrifying. And you're like, you do get the sense of like, oh, this is this is what bullets do to people. And like similar to like the rover where you're watching the toll every bullet takes as opposed to like mindlessly spraying bullets and like people are falling and like bodies are falling apart, which we'll get into with the next title we're discussing. (laughs) Um, But like, yeah, there's there's a sense of, you know, there's there is like a kind of sick thrill to seeing you know, something you've never seen before, but it, it is, it does have the gravity of showing you the, the, the true kind of like cause and effect of violence. So like, it gives you that sort of like adrenalized charge, but then roots you into the sort of like gravity of the situation where it's like, yeah, people get destroyed. It's not fun. Yeah. And he'll, he'll even remind you, um, cause if, if this movie shares anything, there are like, there are more generic broadly sort of, um, told versions of a movie like hold the dark. Although I think it's kind of unique in, in the story it's telling is they, they just wouldn't dwell on things. The cost of that, like beyond just seeing what the bullets do, you kind of get moments after you're like, Holy shit. I'm so glad that person survived. Like, and the cost it would have on you. Like one is a sheriff that survives this gunfight um, played, played by James bad badge Dale, I think is his name. And, um, you just get to reflect on it. And you're like, Holy shit, how lucky and how, sh- how just like mind blowing that would be to go through something like that. You know, most cops don't experience that sort of thing. You know, I think it's fair to say mm-hmm. the level of like gunfire and like just nightmarish quality of that sequence. And yet within that, uh, I, I do think Jeremy Saulnier is a really great student of uh, something that's become sort of a modern trope, but I think he finds his own way into it is he is not afraid to kill off characters that you think are safe. Essentially, nobody's safe in a Jeremy Saulnier movie, and that's consistent. Um, but he, I don't think he ever cheapens it in a way that like post Game of Thrones, there's a lot of TV shows, there's a lot of lesser movies that they really just want to shock you with that and they don't know how to pull it off. But I think there's like... I think there's a real like thought and and consideration going on with what Saulnier is doing here. Um, I also want to say that I think making Blair's script is 
very strong in the, in this movie. Yeah. I, I really appreciate his work, but also I think the thing most is like how little they actually give you. And it's a little bit frustrating as you watch hold the dark, but I think the payoff is um, more like long lasting because I, uh, it's like a movie I keep thinking about. And I, I again, I, I can't say I fully understood all of it, but in the best way, I was like, God, what, what is, there's just, it, it just, it, and it goes places I didn't expect. I wouldn't have thought a movie would go there. Um, and well, I think, yeah. the, I think the script really trusts that the audience and like is going to like pick it up. Like you don't get a lot right. of backstory as to why people live, remotely the way they do but a lot of people who live on the fringes like that they're like they're a, they're of a specific disposition where it's like there's a lot of kind of like fugitive type people that push to the margins and like push to the edge of maps and like geography just to get as far away from society as possible yeah he never tells he never overloads you with too much backstory for anybody he just kind of gives you hints of like haunted people and why they occupy the sort of like desolation that they occupy there's also like a scene that stuck out to me where um you know riley keogh before she disappears from the movie is getting jeffrey wright ready to head out into the wilderness go track the wolves in the sort of initial first third of the movie and she tapes the barrel of his rifle yes and you don't it's not explained but it's like i watched her do it and i was like oh that must be so it doesn't freeze that's yes yes and so it's just like, it's not, expl- it, but that plays into a moment of suspense where he has to take the tape off the barrel later, but like a sort of a movie that didn't trust its audience would have explained that like, oh, I see that you put tape over the barrel. Yeah, I do that. So, you know, like it right. just, it trusted that you would like put it together. Like I'm showing you something, put it together. Why it would have like, why, why would I tape a barrel of a rifle? So it wouldn't freeze. Oh, good. Good answer. Like you're paying attention. So it was just like. <laughs> I appreciated that level, that demonstration of trust in the script. Yeah. And, it was like, and it's like, that's a minor one. That's mm-hmm. like, yeah, of course, of course they wouldn't over explain it, but they often do in scripts because like a lot of the notes and more hands-on experiences will be like, oh, audiences are dumb and the audiences will continue to be dumb. If you feed them dumb product, you know, like you need to, they'll rise to the level that you set for them. Well, I mean, with that, with that in mind, does, is that a thing that we should maybe applaud? this new Netflix model for, I mean, that's what allowed this movie. Well, okay. To exist the way it does here. (laughs) Maybe we can pivot into maniac now, because I think that there is like a hands off approach that can have, you know, that can have some drop. Like there, there are some negative side effects to hands off. Like, whereas like producers who would be a little more hands on with the product, which like, you know, the, they, they could have a level of like uh, a production team and a, su- a set of producers that have nothing to do with the Netflix corporation, but do are like the filmmakers are beholden to them to like answer to them for stuff. But like, it does seem that like people kind of have free reign to do whatever they want. And a lot of the feature films that have come out of Netflix have been, you know, a lot of hit and miss product. Yeah. And then with like with something as promising as like a new miniseries by Kerry Fukunaga, which like, you know, his his first film, Sinombre, like is like it it sort of occupies that same space of desolation that we talked about with like No Country for Old Men, about, yeah. you know, a group of people who are immigrating to America and they're like preyed upon by 
you know, like some of the, like a, a Mexican gang and like, it's, it's pretty lean, but there, there is a sense of kind of like a, a poetic reflective quality to it. And then you can see how he transitioned into true detective with that, that similar sensibility. And like with this, so it's just like, Oh, he's, he's got a new miniseries in mind. Like, fuck do whatever you want. Yeah. It's going to be great. Right. Like, and so you get talent attached to it. Like, uh, Jonah Hill, Emma Stone. Is that the right Emma? I yes. The right Emma. Okay, great. <laughs> um, uh, Justin Thoreau, and, Sally Field. They're in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so it just, it looks like it's game on, you know, like it's, it's promising. It's, oh, it's got like a retro futurist vibe, like a Philip K. Dick imagining of, uh, you know, a, 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 a pharmaceutical company, like a, a testing level of a pharmaceutical company where all of a sudden people's uh, overlapping parallel universes are being explored. Great. Maybe it could be, could be promising. And it's like a level of kind of like heightened, genre um playfulness that you haven't seen um carrie fukunaga work in necessarily yet and um so you know like with with flourishes of michelle gondry and you know other other people of that camp like might 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 be exciting or it could be a mess (laughs) um i'm leaning more towards it being kind of a mess even though you know the sort of like outpouring of critical response has been mostly positive for this show. Like I think that it's, it's something that needed to be checked tonally a little more. Cause I think that it's just like, it's not, it doesn't have like a narrative thrust that really justifies a lot of its tangents. Mm. And yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't even know where to begin because I sort of fell off like, pr- like pretty quickly finished it, but just didn't was it just wasn't, appropriately engaged the way I wanted to be. No, I, I feel you. And I, I think I'm, uh, you know, even talking off mic, I'm, I'm pretty confident that I liked this more than you, but I still think a very mixed bag and, um, yeah, 10 episodes. I was really glad when I pulled it up to see, okay, at least they're not all like hour long. Hour. Yeah. yeah. They, they sort of, each chapter kind of has the feel that it's as long or as short as it needs to be. So some are like 28 minutes, some are yeah. like 40, but it's right around a half an hour. So that's, I appreciated that, but it does still feel overlong. It, it really, um, there, there's, there's so many things that I do appreciate about it, but then it ends up sort of, um, not doing anything with it. It's just like really great window dressing. Um, it, for me, the the alternate reality that they created in this show is the one of the best things about it. It's just sort of fun in a in a way that um, I can't really say a lot of Fukunaga's films or works up to this point have been. Like True Detective has moments of humor in some of the dialogue exchanges between yeah. Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey, but like most of his work, you know, Beasts of No Nation and Jane Eyre are two other films he's made. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that none of these are typically like fun things. So maybe the appeal was Maniac could be fun for him. Uh, yeah, yeah. But that's that's the sort of tonal register that I'm I'm not sure he has a handle on yet because. Um, right. The, the world building's great. This is a, a world that has a, a second Statue of Liberty that's just this gaudy, ugly new thing. Or or they have um, computers that look like 80s computers with the black screen and the green text, and that's kind of it. But yet they have all the modern, they have plenty of other modern technology. Like it's virtual it's, reality, essentially. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's an interesting mixed bag. It's got a, 
Um, you've referenced Michelle Gondry. I also think like it's got a Terry Gilliam, like Brazil spirit yeah. to it. Um, and all of that sounds really fun. Oh, director. I like doing that. And Fukunaga has nothing, if not dexterous as a storyteller, like uh, mm-hmm. I've been reading some interviews with him recently and he's talked about that was sort of his, his conscious choice uh, that he made with each film or project was to try to do something different that people didn't expect him to do. So he didn't get pigeonholed because I would imagine that would have been easy to do with Sin Nobre, which I thought was such a strong debut, you know, socialist, social realist kind of uh, genre movie that uh, you could see him getting locked into that. And that's the only thing he gets to make. So I I applaud his uh, ability and desire to try to like, be that type of filmmaker that um, is an auteur, but kind of wants to bring what's necessary to each one. But uh, hopefully the next one that deals in a more humorous uh, or sort of um, quirky oddball vibe like Maniac, I just, I'm sure he'll have a better handle on it. But I, I do agree. This movie is very, or this, this miniseries is very episodic and it could have worked in that way because you get to yeah. go into different, hallucinatory worlds you know it's almost like inception in that way where they get into these like mini movies right um yeah as these characters go through a drug a drug treatment process where they hallucinate and it's like i get it this feels very episodic seems appropriate to be a mini series or a show but um yeah i don't know there's just odd it, it's the balancing of tones that doesn't always work uh in, in this one it, and it's very much a mixed bag for me Yeah. And for someone, you know, to go on record as saying they wanted to try, you know, uh, something new with every project like this was a a potentially an entry point to try an insane variety of things all at once. And I think that that's like you can point to that being an effort, but it doesn't necessarily pull it off. No. Yeah. Where like, you know, so they're they're part of this like, you know, dystopian retro future uh, pharmaceutical test process where they're they're trying to figure out the the paths of their mind to correct you know and you know become happier people so they have all these test subjects you know fanned out in these like tanning bed like looking apparatuses and they all hallucinate things and the two main characters find out that their their hallucinations overlap so it's just like with every you can see an effort to have different types of films different types of episodes in each hallucination but then like seeing that not materialize ends up becoming frustrating because you're like well Mm -hmm. this could have been like such a like crazy um like attempt you know this this could have like jumped tones and you just have to have a masterful sense of a baseline Mm. in order to like make those leaps which it doesn't really have and i think that his comfort zone is most likely in something that's relatively serious that is able to be funny. Like the, yeah, the dialogue exchanges between Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson and true detective are like, you have the, the absurdly poetic weirdo with Matthew McConaughey and then the straight man with Woody Harrelson. And like the, the baseline is that everything is like kind of gloomy and fucked like through the whole show. And then you have these two people kind of like, answering the reality of it and it's oftentimes like pretty funny the extremes of it are pretty funny so it's like it's serious and then it is allowed to have some levity whereas like this everything is mostly played for a joke and that started to remind me even visually which i think a lot of it is really appealing there's a lot that like you know looks good about it but 
everything because everything is played for a joke a lot of the visuals end up being played for jokes and it's just like like what are we doing like if there's no real emotional through line and everything is sort of like like everything's played for a cheap joke like you know justin thoreau telling sally field uh you know while she's getting ready to interface with what is essentially a supercomputer modeled after her in like a <laughs> hal 9000 way but it's actually mom 9000 and he's she has to freebase in order to get into the process and he <laughs> holds a pipe up to her lips and tells her to suck it and it's just like the fuck are we doing like if there's no maintained emotional reality and like everything is just an absurd non sequitur then like most of those most of that shit's not gonna land you know and it's just like him telling sally field to suck put it in her mouth and suck it i was like this is ridiculous and not in a way that like has a thrill or charge or energy to it it just feels like constant distracted like misses you know and like i don't I just didn't know what to make of it eventually when it, it felt like there were, there were enough things to identify with its intention of being like, Oh, that's an interesting idea. Too bad. It didn't synergize into something a little more engaging. There's at least, I don't know, four or five different personas essentially that Jonah Hill, the lead and Emma stone, the other lead of the show, like they get to take on in these hallucinin these hallucinations. And I feel like most of them are either, the like, for lack of a better description, just kind of lame, you know, like, like, oh, okay. So in one Jonah Hill and Emma Stone are a married couple from Jersey. So they get to like, yeah. he gets to wear a ridiculous, uh, Jersey and a mullet. Yeah. Yeah. And she's doing the accent, the Jersey thing. It's like, mm. I get why that was fun, but crispy bangs. Great. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then, and then it's, it gets even worse where there's like a, a, a crime episode one where Jonah Hill is like this, this bizarre, I just, I, you know, my big thing, my big issue with the show is that Jonah Hill is like really miscast or maybe he was the right idea. Cause I think he, we talked off Michael, like, who do you get to do this role? You need a certain kind of performer. And he seems to match that. Based Dana on Carvey. His... <laughs> yes. Dana Carvey. There you go. Like 30 years ago, maybe, uh, God, but Jonah Hill just felt all wrong because this is sort of a goofily humored show, but he doesn't ever get to show that side of him. He, he just, he comes at such a low sad register his character is in such a bad place yeah that like it may it the show never it's just sort of like a slog to get through his shit and then mm-hmm. um I, I have to admit uh you, you know you're referencing a definitely a ridiculous moment with sally field and justin throw but right. this is a thing where i actually felt like the more interesting characters were the justin throw character and then um the actress from Ex Machina, uh, Sonoya, uh, Sonoya Mizuno. I'm I'm probably murdering her name, but she she was one of the robots in Ex Machina, and she's yeah. really memorable in that. And she's great in this show too. And I just think her and Justin Thoreau are the parts where the times where I think it kind of comes to life. And I, I think Thoreau is really funny for the most part in this show. He has this sort of like. Uh, perpetual. He's a. He's totally uh, obsessed with his mother, who has like completely kind of damaged him in a way. And you mm-hmm. see him as a middle-aged man, like really effectively portraying a character that's like truly a boy still, but like 
trying to be an adult and um, watching him just wrestle with that. I thought was constantly funny. He has this sort of like, (gasps) like he's taking big breaths all the time and it like, he's about to start crying. I just Mm. thought choices like that were really great, but you know, were I to say, I wish they were the main characters of the show. It would, it would alter it. It wouldn't be the same thing. And I think why they work better for me is that they're used more sparingly and I get a lot of Jonah Hill. Emma Stone's I think good and kind of more of a flexible actor to be able to take on different things. I just realized I thought Jonah Hill was kind of limited in what he could do in this. And maybe it's just, it just didn't work out for me with, with him on this one. But um, it's the first time I can really think I was like, man, Jonah Hill is just like all wrong for this. Um, And I think that hurts, hurts it a lot overall. So he's playing a series of like, like alternate personalities in these in the in these differing dimensions that they go into and their hallucinations but his like base character that we start the miniseries with is an archetype that is pretty tiresome at this point the sort of like vacant and hushed like monotone schlub that like you know yeah. we, we had jim carrey play him in eternal sunshine of the spotless mind you've had just like countless people play like Oh, I don't know. You know, just kind of like (laughs) hushed bummer dude. And it's just like, all right, like this is it. it, It's gone on for so long that it's like not an interesting archetype at all, if it ever was. And then he because he's just like a cipher, essentially, you know, and like that's uh, how interesting is that? I don't know. But like, yeah, I don't know. Like they're they're just, you know, his his strengths um, they're, they're, it's just it's interesting to see people kind of like swing for the fences and then like not really connect because like you have Kerry Fukunaga taking these like insane like leaps and tone and like you know a, a lot of that's credited also to Patrick Somerville who wrote most of the episodes mm-hmm. who's like a writer on Leftovers I think yes um, also this is based on a Swedish show but I heard they're quite different they're, they're okay. vastly different right. but it was originated from there and um, there's also the actor from uh, from Ingrid Goes West and Game Night. Oh man, he's really good. Uh, yeah, I've I've been liking that guy. Uh, he was in Boardwalk Empire too, near the end. Um, yeah, and he's almost somebody that I was like, well, what? I wonder if they switched parts. You know what I mean? And he played because he has that kind of ability to like like he's kind of chameleon like. He can like change energies and you know change like directions and be as but I don't, I don't maybe he's not as strong of a romantic lead as maybe. Jonah Hill is Billy <laughs> maybe Billy Magnuson is his name yeah yeah he's um, great he um, is, yeah and uh Danny Hotch is in it he plays one of the guys originally flagged <laughs> From white by- boys <laughs> yeah oh yeah you know white boys oh he's I, a, he's a, I know white boys yes <laughs> he's a great solo performer as well you know had one man shows like jails hospitals and hip-hop and some oh, people wow. I didn't so know that. It was, you know, a delight to see him. He's a good character actor. He's popped up in like War of the Worlds and stuff like that. And he's got a great face. He nobody yeah. has a face like him. Yeah, he's recounting his experience from the from the experiment. And says like, I was just killing people with a hammer, and while I was looking for my dad's balls, I was like, <laughs> okay, that's that. Can I stop here? Because that was the highlight for me. Can I just <laughs> exit this miniseries? That's the thing, right? All the peripheral, well, not all, but a lot of the peripheral stuff going on in Maniac. It's one of those things. I think it's why it frustrated us. Is seems more funny 
and more interesting than the kind of milk toast like Emma Stone and Jonah Hill stuff where it's like, oh, like I just feel like the choices made in their alternate stories, like one's a Lord of the Rings movie. You know, right. one's one's a crime story. One one is them as an '80s couple or whatever. Like, I just, I, one's I, I clue kind of like, yeah, in a mansion. <laughs> and you know, one of those sequences involves a, I guess, Carrie Fukunaga's becoming sort of known, I guess, for doing these long take action sequences after True Detective. It's sort of becoming associated with him because yeah. Be- Beast of No Nation had some really impressive uh, things like that too. But there's a long take action sequence like a gunfight in a hallway in this near the end in maniac where uh essentially emma stone is just laying waste to a bunch of guys and i actually felt like oh this should be the moment that like i'm like holy shit that's so cool and it's very flashy and very stylish but all i noticed was how kind of cheap and fake looking it 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 came off like well now there's just no connection to like the violence either in stark contrast with what we were talking about with hold the dark like yes and that's become kind of, I, I don't know what we're doing anymore. Like not like you can have a heightened genre film where violence is playful as like, a, you know, an extremity, but like, it's just gotten to the point where it's so detached that it's like, what am I even watching? You know, there were several moments in maniac where that happened where I was like, wow, like it's not, it's not that I haven't seen violence on that Gra- uh, to that graphic like level before I've oh seen- i've seen violence yeah we've seen plenty you know it's not about that it's just like it's a tone thing it really is and it feels kind of you said it perfectly i don't need to reiterate like what are we doing here why why am i seeing a guy get blasted literally in half from a shotgun like to what end or uh yeah it just it just is the sort of thing where it's such a a mixed bag of wacky things going on that um, stuff like that just makes you wonder like, what, what was the idea there? I, I, I guess I don't know. And then it just feels, um, kind of f- like flat and like there's, there's, there's just like hollowness to it. Whereas something like hold the dark treats it with such, I mean, they're different things, but I guess I, uh, at least hold the dark knew what it was trying to do with the violence and it wasn't careless about it. It's extremely yeah. violent, but to a point and maniac, I think kind of needed something else beyond just the, the shock of it. And it, it kind of like a lot of things in the show just seems like it's a shock or hopefully a gag and then on to the next thing. And yeah, it, it's, it's a, it's a mixed bag for sure. Um, I, I am, con- I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised, but it, it seems like we're flipped from how most of like critics out there or just people talking about these two things, these two pieces of content, uh, out there is like a lot of people seem, you know, hold the darks getting solid reviews, but there's kind of muted, not, not the enthusiasm I would say as blue ruin and green room. Uh, and a lot of critics and like colleagues and stuff seem to be really going for maniac where you and I seem like we, we might be flipped a little bit more. Yeah. I, I, I think it just might be, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't want to believe that people are watching with like I think Maniac has more, um, like, uh, of course, there's an artfulness, there's an attention to detail. I'm not, I'm not trying to take anything away from that, but there is an ability to watch it with like a distracted, um, kind of like fragmented viewership. Whereas, like, hold the dark, you, you're not gonna, you, it doesn't, it doesn't hold your hand. Hmm? Um, so, like, 
if you're if you're only half paying attention, you're going to be lost. Whereas like you can kind of get like, I like how this show looks. Oh, it's fun. It's bouncy. And like, but like if you're if you are paying attention, you notice like how tonally inconsistent it is, how frustrating it is in that sense. You know, whereas like if you if you value sort of attentiveness and what you're engaging with, then like hold the dark does hold your attention. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Enough fucking holds. The, <laughs> the play out holds. Yep. Yep. Uh, Hold the Dark is is really like an uh, not one that I saw coming from Jeremy, Jeremy Saulnier. And that's the thing I, I'm left with at this point of like, I'm really impressed with the type of movie he, he, he tried to make. And I think he's pretty successful with. And uh, yeah. yeah, I didn't see that coming. And that was nice. Whereas... Uh, I guess I didn't see the kind of messiness of Maniac coming, but then again, it looked like it could be one of those shows. I just thought Fukunaga would hold it together a little bit more, but um, whatever, you know, that that shows out now, and now he gets to make the new James Bond movie. Yeah, I'm sure you heard that news, yeah? Oh, I felt like that switched hands so many times that I stopped paying attention. It just hurts my feelings because I don't care about James Bond. <laughs> Same. I, I really don't either, you know, uh, but uh, yeah, it was Danny Boyle for a while and then he left and it does seem to be a sort of a revolving door right now. Who's going to make that? But right now it's it's Fukunaga and he's left. He's left other projects. He unfortunately didn't make it. He was set to make that. Um, yeah. yeah. And he got story credit on the final product, but he walked away because I think essentially they weren't going to let him make the movie he wanted. So he's not afraid to do that, but um, it is interesting. Like, is this Bond movie a big step up to try to... He hasn't been in theaters in a long time. You know, like Jane, yeah. Jane Eyre is the last theatrical film he had, and then he went to True Detective to mm-hmm. beast of no nation and now maniac. So he's had a, he's had a lot of like lost years where he tried to get stuff produced and it didn't work. Um, uh, you know, typical director, uh, struggles you hear about, but, uh, I I'm sure this bond thing is something he wants to do. It's uh, you know, like something he's passionate about, but it might also be a very smart strategic move for his career to like, it's inevitably going to be a big hit and maybe it'll open more doors so he can get some more stuff in theaters. Cause, um, regardless of how I feel about Maniac, I want to see what he's going to do next. But um, I just hope it's a little, a little more consistent. I guess would be fair. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's stuff that, like, you know, we remarked <laughs> I think a few years ago when we talked about True Detective about how cinematic that show was. You know, about how like a lot of the camera work was leaned more towards movies than it did typical television work and so you know he's just somebody that's always at that crossroad of like what ideas go where and so to have like a a potential is it a franchise that's split into two things kind of but not really yeah like to, to be at the at the threshold of like a big property like it you know which it we saw what it eventually became you know when it got when it came out like it was a huge hit and like for him to sort of back away from it because he wouldn't get to do exactly what he wanted to do. You see that like, you know, their filmmakers are at like a weird threshold where it's just like, well, if the thing that made me a breakout kind of voice and some, what made me singular just ends up getting, landing me a job where I'll get absorbed into a system where everything is streamlined into looking the same, then what's the fucking point of making a signature effort? You know, like, and I think like Jeremy Sonye, you know, like he making a movie that like a movie like Green Room, like as much as it may not have like hit the financial like, you know, peak that they intended that A24 like would hope for, 
it still was like you can't front on that movie. You just look at it and you're like, no, that's like people because people who like this like studios can look at that movie and be like, well, that you know they're not going to say that didn't work. They can be like, yeah, that movie's a motherfucker. You know, like it's so good, that's that's serious, (laughs) and like it may not have connected because they didn't know how to package it without having it look like some weird torture porn movie, which it wasn't, you know, like mm-hmm. they, they still can't, they can't really refute this, like the, the chops that are at work, no pun intended with green room. <laughs> so like, he's a, he's a great filmmaker. And so I, I imagine he's getting courted for stuff, you know, that like would, would just absorb him into a system where his look kind of gets like chipped away and streamlined into something that, to bring it back full circle, David Cronenberg, you know, was once saying that like he has no interest in doing studio movies because, you know, he he just sees it as like there's there's no point in bringing what he does to the table into something that's already sort of predetermined through tone, look, and feel. Right. It's like he it's just like coming onto a t- a successful TV show and just being like a director where you're like I point the camera here. There's like nothing to that. Right. For someone who is as like signature as he is, he feels no point. And like, I think these two directors are, are similar where it's just like, why do a Marvel movie? Why do a star Wars movie? Why do, you know, a bond movie, which, you know, they've changed a little bit, but like (laughs) they're still relatively the same. Yeah. And I mean, all problems I have with maniac that I've listed already on this episode, like still both these, both these things hold the dark and maniac, but especially hold the dark. We're as Jeremy Solney has said, like he, he made that the way he wanted to make it. Like, so if, so um, I hope that's the tactic, right? Because yeah, hopefully he doesn't have to make his next 10 movies for Netflix, but if he is, I hope he can continue and isn't affected by the thing, you know, a concern you had at the top of the show of like, if, if uh, like, if he's going to keep making them not built for the small screen, that would uh, eventually, inevitably kind of change the way the movies are being produced, but mm-hmm. at least he didn't do that with hold the dark. Hopefully that can continue. Cause I, I prefer that tactic. Uh, you know, you and I were raised and came up, came of age watching movies on crappy VHS t- tapes on bad TVs. And we started to love film from that, you know? So if you can good movies can be shot, you know, those, those things that we grew up on, on VHS were not in the best, like they were made for a cinema, but we saw them in a crappy condition yet something about them still worked, you know? So, um, hopefully directors remember that if they're making something for Hulu or Amazon or Netflix, like still make it like it belongs on a big screen. Uh, and you know, the, the good filmmaking I think will always come through. So I hope that happens. Yeah. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. All right. So why don't we uh, wrap up episode 186 of Adjust Your Tracking? What do you say? Sure. So just chill to the next episode. All right. Uh, so, yeah, you can uh, just another friendly reminder. You can find all of our episodes at theplaylist.net and those of our other shows like Over Under Movies, The, the Playlist Podcast, uh, Indie Beat. Uh, we, yeah, re, uh, just last week we, we had no AYT Joe. So, uh, I moonlighted with our buddy Octay Kozak and we talked about the tree of life Blu-ray yep. on criterion. Yep. I, Almost left a comment saying, boo. <laughs> <laughs> well, I referenced you at the end. I said, nothing gets Joe more cranky than talking Terrence Malick. So, uh, you know, I was, I was appreciating Octay to Malick, to- man. Ugh. <laughs> oh, it's like origins of AYT right there. I love it. So, uh, yeah, we're, 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 
we're putting out lots of different episodes uh, on the feed and lots of different shows. So see what's your jams, which ones you like. Let us know. And you can email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. That would be really wonderful. But, um, you know, not as wonderful as getting to talk with you, Joe. So thanks for talking with me, buddy. Thanks, Eric. <laughs>